there's something around eating, which is called don't yuck my yum. You know, that word yuck, and there's a whole list of them, you know, disgusting. Oh, that's nasty. We encourage them not to use those words because you never know like what that person brought that day could be exactly what you said. And maybe it's a cultural dish that you've never seen before. And so it looks unusual. Yes, it looks different. Surely it does. But to name it as something negative is something we encourage them not to do. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Surprise, Arizona, Alpharetta, Georgia, and Cape Coast, Ghana in Africa. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 25 of season 6, number 421 overall. What if turning your ultra picky eating, not gonna touch it so don't even bother putting it on my plate, vegetable loathing little one is actually an undercover plant-based ultra fan. Better yet, maybe this is also your husband or your wife. Well, my guest today suspects that could be the case, and she has come up with some ways that cooking can bring out the veggie lover in us all, even even if the affinity for greens is buried way, way, way down in this particular person. Chef Rebecca Johnson says it can happen because picky eaters aren't born picky eaters. Picky eating is actually a learned behavior, something that we acquire over time. So all we have to do is figure out a new way of thinking, a new way of training ourselves to eat, kind of like changing up a workout. You've been training one way for a while now, but you're not really happy with the results. So now you train a different way. You say, well, let's do it this way and you get different results pretty cool idea. A lot of her methods are actually based on her own experiences and they have helped her come up with what she calls the five C's of cooking. These are the five things that'll get your kids or significant other or whomever to rethink that nasty green stuff on their plate. It's not going to be nasty anymore. It's going to get them to change their taste buds and get them all excited about eating a healthier diet. And that is something that can really excite us all. And what excites me most about this is that it really does set them up for a lifetime of healthy habits. So what we're going to do is take a pint-sized processed food worshiper and teach them how to become a five-star vegetable connoisseur. So grandparents, share this show with your kids so they can share it with their own kids. And parents, take Chef Rebecca's five C's and put them into practice and get your kids excited about a new way of eating. One that will get the whole family going with healthier habits. And we're going to learn how to do all of that right now with Chef Rebecca Johnson 
and her tips that work for kids of all ages. Thanks for being here, Chef. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. It's great to see you. It's so good to see you here. I love what you're doing up in New York. And you are coming to us today. We're going to talk about a lot of things to help the parents, to talk to kids. But I want to start with what you call your five C's of cooking. What are the five C's of cooking? So the five C's are, of cooking are way to presence children to the experience that they're having, that it's not just something in their hands, but also there's a result that they're going to get from that. But we need them to embrace the process and uh, to do it in a way where we're in their world. You know, many times we're trying to bring them into our world, but we got to get into their world. Um, and so I do that with these five C's. And the first one is to be curious. And so certainly children are generally curious, but I want them to be curious about the foods that they're about to make and eat, but also the process of cooking so that it really sticks with them. And honestly, even for adults, when we're looking at cognitive ability and ways in which um, we can grow in that area, curiosity is something that adults tend to lose. But for any kind of learning, even if you want to learn the piano and you haven't played it before, you need curiosity. So straight out the gate we have uh, curiosity the next one oh, did you want to stop there and talk well, yeah, about well yeah i was just going to ask you so do, do you encourage parents to tell their kids like let's ask questions let's have a conversation about it and maybe that dialogue then can help spark some of that curiosity absolutely kids are going to ask questions you need to get them in an environment where they will ask questions about food so one of the things that I recommend uh, for parents is they absolutely get kids in the kitchen. Just get them around food, get them around um, a cooking experience. You could be making oatmeal, doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be anything major uh, from a culinary perspective. Children will naturally ask questions. The, the um, suggestion for the parents or the recommendation for the parents is to answer those questions. A lot of times when we're cooking, um, especially you know those of us who are working, we're trying to eat in between tasks, it'll be a rush. Oh, we gotta hurry up, we gotta get this food in this bowl, we gotta get out this door. There needs to be time set aside, quality time set aside, where a child's uh, questions can be answered and indulged. And I think that, uh, you know, if they're involved in the cooking process, and I know um, in previous discussions, you and I have said, uh, you know, even getting a child involved in growing their own vegetables that they can then pick and eat, that also uh, leads to more curiosity and that whole teaching process, getting them excited about it. So that's very cool. Um, what is the next C in your five C's? Creative, be creative. And so that is giving children a license to make it their way. You know, there's a recipe for something, but when you're working with children, it's not about perfection. It's about letting them drive things. Um, so instead of um, having an idea, let's say, you know, you maybe you're working with fruit and maybe you're working with some sort of pastry and you know that 
the pastry gets stuffed in the fruit or under the fruit. Um, um, and so instead of having it your way, they may flip it and do it the opposite way. And so you want to promote that creativity and it may shock you. I've, let me tell you, when I'm working with kids, I've, I've really been shocked at some of the th creations they come up with. But rather than trying to correct them, um, it is like, wow, I can't believe you did that. That's amazing. Yeah, let's try it that way. Um, and that creativity, they will then be open to, to, I mean, bottom line is, and we did talk about this, and I thought you were going to mention that, is when kids cook, they're invested. So they're going to eat things that they normally wouldn't eat, things that you might put on their plate and say, have this. Because they made it, they're going to eat it. So having that creativity and making that part of the process and allowing them to be creative and lead with their creativity, even though it may look a little weird to you or be a little strange, um, anything that's safe, of course, you're not going to eat a raw egg, um, but allowing <laughs> them to have that is uh, really important. I mean, it sounds to me like you're you're kind of skirting the line of giving kids permission to play with their food a little bit. It kind of yeah. reminds me of being a little kid myself. And I would, uh, whenever we had mashed potatoes, I would kind of make a mountain of mashed potatoes, you know, and then turn it into a volcano. I put the gravy on top, on top. And I think that, you know, whether it's mashed potatoes or anything else, like a little bit of imagination goes right to creativity. I got fired up, Rebecca about those mashed potatoes. I was really excited every time that I had an opportunity to eat them. I would assume it could be the same for literally any other food that they're putting on their plate. No question. But what I'm surprised about what you just shared is that no one corrected you and said, don't do that. Don't, <laughs> right? Because that's what happens. Even in the beginning when you said, you know, how are we going to get the kids to eat a certain food? One of the things that it's taught in child psychology is not to force children to eat food. It is actually something that can cause um, later in life issues around food and eating. So if they don't like broccoli, fine, don't eat the broccoli, but it goes on the plate. And so it's a whole system of the fact that the parent has a role and the child has the role, the, it's called the division of responsibility. The parent's role is to provide healthy food at a particular time, at a particular place. So six o'clock, the meal's on the table and you're there to eat it. The child's job is to say yes or no or more. So they may not want the peas, they may like the rice and they may want more rice. I can tell you growing up, my experience was more like eat that those peas before you get more rice. And that is not the way it is taught um, by child psychologists. Let them have more of what they want, but the exposure is what's important. So it could be a teaspoon of peas and they it has to be on the plate. Well, I don't want that on my plate, sorry. It has to be on the plate, right? You don't have to eat it. And they've proven that within 10 to 15 times, that child would become curious. There we go again. And they will say, hmm, and they'll take a pee and try it. 
And that, remember, we're dealing with palates that are not used to food at all. When mm. you have a baby, what are they having? They're having milk. They're having some other kind of formula. Their palates are not developing. So right. as these new foods are being introduced, there has to be a slow process of getting them used to what they look like. You can certainly talk about things like what color are those things on your plate? And a child will answer, say, green. Okay, that's the only conversation you have to have. Now in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, there are green things on my plate. So next time that thing's there, they may have more curiosity and try it. And you know what? I think that the more familiar they become with something, the more comfortable they become with having something like that on their plate. Uh, it leads directly to bravery, which is a synonym for the next C on your list. Yes, courageous. And so I tell them, listen, jump in, try something new, try a new food, try to, to make this thing. I'm showing them how to stir something or to use a whisk, or they might be using a tool they've never used before. And I want them to be courageous and I want them to try and have um, that sense of confidence that when they are cooking, they don't have to be bashful or afraid, but they can have that courage to try, always try. There's something called the three bite rule. I love this little book that was written um, by, I can't think of the author right now, but it's part, you can be part of the three bite club. So when kids are introduced to something new, and automatically, because we're all, it's human nature, we're all the same. When something new comes, we're not sure, is this going to be good? Am I going to like this, not like this? They're the same way. So this three bite club is try three bites and then you can be part of the club. One is not enough because one could just be in your mouth and out of your mouth. But if you, by the time you chew and you get to three you can determine whether this is a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a thumbs in the middle. We use that with them, which is like, ah, oh, I'm not really sure. I might try it again. So we definitely want them to feel courageous. Bravery. I love it. Courageous. That's so That's so good. And I think that that's fun. And like, I, I would imagine that as they're kind of courageous like that, you know, they're, they're, there's going to be that sense of, you know, oh, I accomplished something, right? I was courageous. I did something that I hadn't done before. I'm good to go now. I'm a little bit older. I'm a little bit wiser. Like, that's kind of a cool feeling that I kind of remember. Like, it was a lot of years ago at this point, but I kind of remember that feeling at the same time. Um, I like your next one as well. I really, really do. You know, don't just send the kid into the kitchen alone. It needs to be, what's the next C? Collaborative. There it is. So that collaboration happens with the person they're cooking with. In my case, it was my dad. So he brought me in the kitchen at six years old. And of course, before then, I'd been watching and peeking around the corner. And he saw my interest. So he invited me in. And we would have sessions, literal sessions, where my dad would cook and he'd let me throw in something, stir something, press a button. I mean, what can you do at six? Not much, right? But I really felt that I was on top of the world. But that was because he included me. He never said, get out, you're a, being a problem. And so we sort of had this dance going. 
um, that I knew after a while with certain dishes that he made, one of his favorites was called Apple Brown Betty, which is a Southern. Oh, um, yes, ma'am. Oh, please. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> what was amazing about him, though, and I could see him now, is he didn't use a recipe. He would just toss in things and and then at the end be this amazing dish. And so it was a love for food, love for cooking, but not just in the kitchen, but a lot of times I'm teaching children in classrooms or in cafeterias, or sometimes it's a community center. And there are other kids there that they don't know very well. And part of our activity will be putting kids in teams. And it's based a lot on age because, you know, the fifth graders will do more than, let's say, the first graders. They just, they're, they're more ambidextrous and they can work, you know, both sides. They, they've already got the math going about you know, cutting something in half, but the little people can't. So we'll put groups together. Sometimes we'll have the older kids that will help the younger kids. So it is a collaborative process. And what I love about that, if you look at indigenous ways of cooking, it was the entire community from the ones who go out and, you know, hack down the tree or the leaves, bringing it back, the ones that are grinding the grain, um, mixing, and then, you know, it has to go into heat. Someone's preparing that. So cooking really is essentially a collaborative effort. And you can tell when you get kids together, they love working in groups. They love working together. And the older ones actually love competitions. So when you get in the grades like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, high school, we like to put in teams, this team against that team. Even that, you know, is a lot of fun. You know, it's I see you just beaming, especially when you were talking about being a little girl and being in the kitchen with your dad. And it makes me think of, you know, how often do you hear, you know, other people talk about, you know, being in the kitchen with their with their grandma or their granddad as well back in the day and, and their mom and dad, they were there too. And it was like this whole big family thing. And then so not only are the recipes passed down from generation to generation, but the tradition of that collaborative cooking is also being passed down. And I just think that it builds such camaraderie and love with the family as well. I mean, it's, it's kind of everything, isn't it? Yes. That is like, you really hit it. Uh, the nail on the head with that. It's really about family. Yeah. Um, and that's how I learned to cook. That's how I learned to eat and love food. It was through family. And in these environments, you know, we're not always working with the actual family of the person, but we become, it's a very familial environment. If you can do this at home with your kids, it's phenomenal. It builds trust. It's a matter of nurture. Nurture is what I was getting when I was cooking in the kitchen with my dad. I did not know that that would be something that would travel with me for the rest of my life mm -hmm. and become something that I'm actually giving when I'm cooking, when I'm working with kids, when I'm cooking with kids. It's that sense of nurture. I know that for a lifetime, they are building healthy habits that will help them. So absolutely, family is very much at the core of what I'm doing. All right. So now let's recap here. We've uh, hit uh, these four so far. Curious, creative, courageous, 
collaborative. And the fifth of the five C's here, what is it? Compassion. Love it. And that is from me to you, someone working with you and doing those things. It's also being compassionate to yourself. You know, kids wanna get it right. And sometimes they get really frustrated or they'll come out at the, you know, the beginning of the class and right away, oh, I can't do this. This is, oh, how am I gonna do that? Give yourself a break. Give yourself some grace and some compassion there. You're trying something new. You're trying something you've never done before. Um, and, you know, it's really just practice. It's it's not that deep. And so sometimes, you know, even when I'm working with adults, they're, they're, they can sometimes be that way too. They don't have that confidence to be able to season a vegetable. You know, how do I make broccoli taste good? You'll get it. It's going to take a little time. You're going to learn a few steps here and there. Um, you're going to try it out the first time you do it. It may not be great, but that's okay. Come back in, try it again. But also compassion from, from a perspective of others. Um, mm -hmm. When we're working with others, you know, saying nice things. There's something around eating, um, which is called don't yuck my yum. And this is when kids are having lunch or they're sharing food or they're watching someone else's food. You know, that word yuck. And there's a whole list of them, you know, disgusting. Oh, that's nasty. We encourage them not to use those words. They're not compassionate words because you never know like what that person brought that day could be exactly what you said. It could be something their grandma made. It could be something their mom made. And maybe it's a cultural dish that you've never seen before. And so it looks unusual. Yes, it looks different. Surely it does. But to name it as something negative is something we encourage them not to do. Use a different word. If someone offers you a food, it doesn't really look like something you're familiar with or you don't think you'd want it. Maybe you're full, who knows? You use a different word. And sometimes just as simple as no thank you, right? Oh, I'll try it another day or maybe another day or find something positive about it. Oh, you know, it looks kind of delicious, but I think I'll wait. And so, all through the process of eating, we are teaching kids compassion. And of course, when you talk about um, plant foods, that's very important. Um, with little people, we don't talk so much about it, but sometimes kids will want to know. They'll have questions about, well, you know, what is a plant-based protein? And then you have to have that conversation that, you know, it's made out of plants. It's not made out of animals. And then you'll even have little people that go, I don't eat animals because <laughs> they don't know what right. the protein they're eating is. So it really, compassion is, is really how I like to end. I love and that. The last thing I'd like to say about that too. Sure. Is we usually try to end the class by giving thanks to the farmer. And because there's this whole process of how this food got to you. Kids need to know that. They need to know that it doesn't come from the supermarket it's actually grown somewhere, right? So it's like, well, where do apples grow? Where do tomatoes grow? Well, apples are a tree, tomatoes are a vine, but someone has to plant that. Someone has to nurture. Even nature isn't part of it because nature has to rain and send the sun 
in order to grow that food. But then there's a whole process of the farmer who brings it to the city and sells it to the distributor. And so we go through that whole process of teaching that. So it's really compassion for the entire process and all those who are involved in the process of bringing this amazing food to your plate. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. See, that's that's curious, that's creative, that's courageous, collaborative, and compassionate. Those are the five C's of cooking. And you know what? I can't think of a better time to be having this conversation given everything that we've been seeing recently in the news about childhood obesity, obviously the trends uh, headed in the wrong direction. And, and we're starting to see a lot of these diseases that we thought were exclusively reserved for you know, adults. Now we're seeing them in children, including heart disease. I mean, and we thought that when somebody would get that in their forties, it was really, really young, but now we're starting to see kids in their teens developing heart disease, even a little bit younger than that. It's, I mean, that is a heavy burden for us to be carrying as a society in terms of our health. And I know that that is something that you are working tirelessly to combat. Um, and I think that that leads right to teaching kids about food, right? Beyond just the five C's that we were just talking about right there. I mean, the kids have to understand. And I know for you, like that education starts by educating the parents. You work a lot with mothers, don't you? Well, yeah, I uh, did a program, you know, I'm right now I'm working with um, uh, the amazing organization that you know, which is called Plant Powered Metro New York. Um, and so Plant Powered is really about the whole community. Um, and so one of the, um, I would say, you know, their audiences, for lack of a better word, are definitely moms. Um, I did in the past uh, work with a program which was teaching moms who were expecting and all the way up to uh, three-year-olds. So if they had children um, up to three-year-olds, they were learning how to feed themselves as expecting moms, but then they were learning how to feed their babies and their toddlers. And so... This is something that is, it's a, it is a burden when you say burden, because it's especially that because the society in general, the food that we see in the supermarkets, the food that we see on TV in commercials, um, it depends on what neighborhood you live in. In my neighborhood, there is fast food every other block, sometimes two or three fast food places in mm. one block. Mm. So we, we're not really helping um, parents um, because they're not being supported in a way where they can feed their children healthy and not have that pressure. And um, when, when you have babies and you have toddlers, that's one thing. But when kids start to go out to school, um, they're around other children. They may be around other parents who are not eating that way. It is a lot of pressure. So I like to think of it as supporting the parents, supporting the moms. You know, moms particularly are the ones 
who do the shopping for the food, do the planning, they're cooking. I'm, I know some dads too. Look at mine. You know, I grew up with a dad who cooked. My mom cooked because we had to eat. My dad cooked because he was a chef and he had a love for it. Um, <laughs> and so that was a little different. But having that support is what parents need. So I definitely, you know, have um worked with parents. I've done cooking classes with parents to try to show them solutions for this conversation that we just had about talking to them, how to invite them, but also cooking solutions so that, you know, their process of making food their kids would eat will be a little easier and particularly around plants because that's, you know, my focus. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what, man, I, <laughs> I think about that. And then like, I kind of think back to my own childhood and I love my mom, right? Like I, a fantastic woman. Um, but she will be the first to tell you that she's probably not the greatest cook in the world. And so I remember being a little kid and actually dragging the stool up to the stove and cooking my own breakfast. And so I'm wondering like, if there's a kid out there what do you do when the kid is just like, I'm just not sure about mom or dad's cooking here, but I know how to operate the pots and the pans. Let me see what I can do for myself. Does that go back to kind of the five C's there about being crea creative, courageous, and all of that good stuff? Or do you just well, say a prayer for the little kid and hope for the best? Yeah, that would be a big S, Chuck, which is safety. <laughs> so you're not going to let kids in the kitchen uh, at a stove cooking themselves. Um, if a parent wants to do that, there's plenty of programs. There's even some virtual stuff where they have these little chefs and, you know, there's a uh, one kid who has his own show and he's in the kitchen and other kids can gather around and always have an adult always up until, you know, a certain age. I, you said, when you said you were cooking, I was a little shocked. What, how old were you? Mm, I mean, I couldn't have been, but like five, six, something like that tops. And I'm, I'm like up there scrambling eggs. This is long before my, my plant-based days, yeah. obviously. But yeah, I was, you know, I didn't like mom's eggs. They were dry, dry as toast. So <laughs> I went ahead and I was doing up my own thing. Good for you. Yeah. And you know, I just think it has to do with each child's capability. You know, if a parent is comfortable with that, and that's something they can do? Absolutely. Um, I was thinking that if a child doesn't like what's being made, then include them in the planning process. So uh, sit down. You've got Monday through Friday. What are you going to have on Monday? Let the child say what they want to eat. Of course, we go back to making sure that it's nutritionally sound. Um, and of course, you can look at the my plate for that in terms of, you know, there should be a certain amount of, of um, uh, protein and grain and vegetables, there should be some fruits. Um, basic, that's just really basic, it goes much deeper than that. But let the child be a part of planning. Um, and then they have that expectation of that thing that they want to eat. We were just talking about this and how kids sometimes like breakfast foods and breakfast foods can absolutely be served at dinner. Why not? 
Oh yeah. You know, it doesn't oh, have to man, be yeah. the whole standard American, you know, it's gotta be a green and a and a brown and a rice. You know, there are different ways of getting protein in a meal, whether it's nuts or avocados. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways. So, and that's the other thing about plant foods that I love is there are so many. I even doing this for as long as I'm I've been doing it, I am still learning about new plant foods all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something you can absolutely do too. Introduce something new. I have kids, I will tell them, go on the internet and find one fruit or one vegetable that you've never eaten. And then ask your family when they go shopping that week, can you try that new thing? Even look for a recipe. And so find the recipe, get the item, and just ask if, hey, can we get blueberries this week? We, we don't eat blueberries. Can we try those? And you can add them onto a salad or something. So it's really supporting the whole process, the family, the cooking, engaging. You know, food, I love food. I grew up loving food. So for me, it's fun. It's a love relationship. Number one, it's going in your body, right? Nothing could yeah. be more intimate than <laughs> eating, right? The facts. In, in America, and that's why I love to travel. When you go to other countries many times, their respect, you know, Italian food, their respect for the ingredients, you know, Japanese food, their, their respect for the culinary aspects of it, not even having to be super fancy, um, but just that love for food and the ingredients as they are, the whole ingredients is something that I really focus on. You know, look at this mango, right? Look at the color of the skin. Look at the seed on the inside and the flesh. What does the flesh look like? It looks like there's strings in there, whatever it is. Because we in our culture don't have that. We've lost that. And I would say it's kind of a general loss of connection with nature. We just don't have it. Everything is so speedy and we just got to eat. We just, that's why fast casual in the restaurant world, fast casual right now is the biggest growing um, uh, concept because people are eating on the go. They're eating on the run. It's got to be something that we call street food. I got to be able to put it in my hand, eat it and keep eating. <laughs> we just have lost this connection with food. That's something that can really encourage children to eat and to eat well is right. making connection again. But let me ask you this. That all sounds well and good, but I'm sure that there's a parent who's listening or watching right now. And they're like, listen, Miss Rebecca, I hear everything that's coming out of your mouth and it sounds fantastic. I just happen to have the most picky eater in the history of all time. And no matter what I do, it just doesn't seem to help. So I guess the question that I have for you, like, are there certain kids that are just born genetically picky or is that a learned habit? I would say they were all picky eaters. <laughs> you know, uh, we know, like we know what we like, what we don't like. But listen, when I was growing up, I hated asparagus. When I saw that asparagus, I mean, literally, I just wanted to get up from the table and leave. 
but it was the way my mom was cooking it. Sorry, mom, but you know, it's true. It was boiled until the all the it just was brown it wasn't green anymore mm. but once i learned how to cook asparagus that you roast it in the oven it became a food that i absolutely love you can lightly steam it it's not to be boiled um and and then there's also if you really get into it there's you know it's you can actually peel the bottom which is the woody part so you peel the woody parts off, which actually makes it more delicious, tender, greater, better texture, um, which is really important with kids. So we're all kind of picky, but it, it goes back to the division of responsibility. If a child wants more rice and doesn't want the asparagus, it's not an argument. Let them have the rice. Right. Because number one, dinner time, and this is a Harvard study, shows that if you're at the table eating dinner together, you don't want to be talking about the plate and what we're eating and not eating. You want to talk about that the person's day, like how was school? What happened? Um, and, you know, that's times when parents will find out if there was a problem, if they're being bullied. Um, and it's also known that talking around eating around the dinner table and then being able to have that conversation present prevents all sorts of things you know drug use violence later in life um so absolutely this conversation about what to eat is something that we've gone a little too far with um i know kids whose parents they're like all they want to eat is pizza Okay, so now start introducing something green on pizza. Most kids, I can tell you, they don't want anything on their pizza except, you know, you'll hear something that like like a pepperoni, right? Mm -hmm. But then you want to might might want to put the peppers and the onions. But it's a process. It's a process, and you have to try. Why? Why are you? Why are your eyes going? Like because that? I'm. I'm just thinking back to if anybody, when I was a kid, tried to put any sort of vegetable on my pizza, that would have been a full blown oh temper tantrum. Guaranteed, I would have wound up in timeout for that one. <laughs> I know. I've had my own experiences with that. Uh huh. Where I put kale, crispy kale, on pizza. Oh, that's a bold move. That is a bold move right there. Holy cow. Oh man, you got to be ready for that. Oh man, okay. Oof. All right. But it's a, it's a it's a listen. It's a, really to encourage parents. It's a process, mm -hmm. right? So, getting number one, don't forget the palette is new. So the palette is brand new. It that's why when I work with parents and I'm introducing baby food. So you're making your own baby food. You're just using a bullet or blender or whatever kind, and you're mixing it up or mashing it up, add a little garlic powder, not salt, but a little seasoning, maybe a little cumin. And so what happens is you'll see the eyes. If you've ever seen a child taste something, they I love those videos they have on YouTube where they have little babies that are tasting lemon and their whole mouth just squeezes up. Um, <laughs> you'll see their eyes recognize that there's flavor and you can absolutely introduce flavor to babies. And so what's happening now is it's almost like a bridge to where food comes later. So now if they're having a little bit of garlic 
in their peas. Now when they're having a food that has garlic in it, they're actually familiar and they won't be as picky, for instance. But there's really nothing wrong um, with being picky in the beginning. And you talk about DNA. How about cilantro? Mm. You know, cilantro has something in it that I can't think of what the, the chemical is, but some of us will eat cilantro and love it like myself. Some others, they eat it and it's like they have soap in their mouth. I can taste the, the soapiness. I get what's happening, but that's not the predominant flavor for me. But that's something that's genetic. So absolutely, there may be foods that a child favors over others. But the last thing we want to do is get into any kind of push and pull over it. The kids will always win. Yep. Uh, the kids always absolutely win. Any parent will tell you that. And if they tell you anything otherwise, mm -mm, they're kidding themselves. Uh, the cilantro thing is fascinating. I just, uh, I, I wanted to get the name for you. So I consulted uh, Google and it absolutely is true. Um, this comes from a recipe website. So uh, we'll, we'll get you the official stuff and we'll put that in the show description for you. But uh, it, it comes from what they call a common smell receptor gene cluster called Write this down. It will be on the test. OR6A2. So there you go. And uh, if that's an issue for you, that's why your cilantro tastes like soap, my friend. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, fascinating. I didn't realize that about cilantro until uh, pretty recently, actually. So that that's a fun little nugget. Um, we, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I know one of the things that you wanted to talk about today, and this is a hard turn. I'm telling you right now, this is a hard term. Maybe it's not, but you wanted to talk about your lobster story. And that to me could be anything under the, under the sun, but it sounds like it's a really good story and it would almost be criminal not to share it. So what is your lobster story? I'll make it fast. Okay. So growing up, we would go out to dinner a lot. And uh, I was the little person. My sisters are eight and 12 years older than me. So there was a great gap. And on one of these dinners, I was uh, seven years old. And we went to a seafood restaurant and everybody was ordering seafood. And they were having lobster. And they were getting me some sort of like fish sticks. And I didn't want fish sticks. I wanted what everyone else had. And it was a, it, it was really, if today, very embarrassing. I just would not eat the fish. <laughs> I wanted lobster. And the reason that I wrote that down is because when babies start to pick for your food and become very interested in your food, it's time. It's time to start exposing them to those flavors. So you may take something and grind it down or mash it down, or you see parents do that all the time. You see parents sometimes, they'll chew the food and take it out and put it in the child's mouth. They're ready to start experiencing those flavors and those textures. You know, they're looking at it and their stuff is not looking so familiar. I mean, it's, their stuff is not looking so appealing anymore, right? Now your food is looking appealing. The other thing about that is our children's menus are just abominable. Many times we go to restaurants, it's the same thing. It's nuggets, it's sticks, it's fries. 
it's pizza. They're not really getting food. And that's why, you know, that's to me the support. I, I do know some parents who are doing things like they're giving their kids frozen mango for a snack. You know how you can buy the set mango. Yeah. 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 You can buy the mango that's cut in spears mm -hmm. or slices. You can cut it yourself and freeze it. When their kid wants a snack, they get get, get them a little thing, they almost like a popsicle. And that's their snack. This can start very early. Not only that, that is extremely calming for teething to just rub, you know, a, a frozen piece of mango against a gum. So these are things that can start early. So now when kids are older, they're going to other people's homes, they're going out. That's what they're asking for. They're asking for real food, not junk and processed stuff. And so that day with the lobster story, I just could not understand why <laughs> I'm sitting at the table. I think it was Mother's Day, actually. <laughs> I'm sitting at the table with everyone else and I can't have what everyone else is having. So yeah, it started my 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 relationship with food started really early, Chuck. <laughs> it did, but it's it's carried with you your entire life. And uh, let's end with this. I think it is just mind blowing to me that asking for real food is no longer the norm. The norm is asking for stuff that really has only been created over the last 60, 70 years, all of this ultra-processed, refined stuff that is anything other than a whole food and is, in fact, uh, probably a big part of the reason why our health trends are headed in such a poor direction. And so we need to really flip the script to make real food the norm and then the other stuff the exception. It, it just it needs to happen. If I could add a point there, so Michael Moss's book, which is um, Salt, Sugar, Fat, he talks about how those ultra-processed foods were marketed back when, right? And they had little icons and, you know, they were, they were lifted up as being this thing that we need to have in our society. Soda, chips, TV dinners. But they were meant to be occasional fare. That's how he puts it. What mm -hmm. happened was it became daily food. Yep. And that's where we are now. We are yep. eating food that was, it's, I don't even call it food, honestly. It's just ultra processed products. Those yep. products were not meant to be our staple, but yep. they have become that. And that is definitely the problem. Well, uh, if that is the problem, you are the solution. And uh, we're going to bring you back because I feel like we have so much more that we still could get to. But I love everything that you are doing. I love your five C's of cooking. And I think that, you know, that I mean, they're just it makes so much sense in terms of how to get the kid excited about food and the cooking process and introducing them to healthy foods, real foods at a young age. And learning that that can carry just like as what happened, uh, what happened with you, carry with them for the rest of their life. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So thank you so very much for making the time. Thank you, Chuck. Chef Rebecca Johnson is one of those people who loves what she does. And no matter what she does, she cannot contain her enthusiasm. I love it when she is on the show. Love it, love it, love it. And she is doing such 
fun, but ultra important work here. I wanted to share this with you. Researchers with the World Obesity Federation in London have come up with projections for the countries that are expected to have the most children with obesity by the year 2030. Now, China is number one by a wide margin, very wide margin. Their estimates here in this particular projection show that nearly 62 million children there will become obese by 2030. Next on the list is India, less than half, but still a very high number. Nearly 28 million children there are expected to be obese. The U.S. is third with 17 million. Indonesia is fourth with right around 9 million. And Brazil, just shy of 8 million children. Here's where those numbers get really, really eye-opening. If you want to open things up and look out another five years. In 2020, around the world, if you added them all up, there were 103 million boys and 72 million girls between the ages of 5 and 19 who were obese. But flash forward to 2035, and those numbers are expected to grow exponentially. 208 million boys and 175 million girls. And when you add all of that together, that means that one out of every five children around the world are expected to become obese by the year 2035. So we've got some work to do, no doubt about it. But Chef Rebecca Johnson and her enthusiasm, her contagious enthusiasm, makes me think that we can get there. We can put in that work. I know that we can make a difference. And I know that you can help us get there as well. And that's why it is so important that parents and grandparents, they get involved here too. Family can usher in change at an early age that will set kids up for a lifetime of health. Their children, their grandchildren do not have to be one out of five. They don't have to be that one. And if you would like to help us here at the Physicians Committee continue everything that we're doing to try to combat this epidemic of childhood obesity and doing it in fun and exciting ways like getting the opportunity to speak with Chef Rebecca Johnson today and her five C's and all of our colorful cookbooks that we have for children, these phenomenal recipes, we want to get them out there. So please consider making a donation right now at pcrm.org slash donate. And that can help us continue to help make the world a healthier place on so many fronts. You know, it will not be long now. The exam room live in Los Angeles on March 30th. Cannot wait for this. It's all happening at the eBell on March 30th. Dr. Neil Barnard will be my special guest that night. Oh, but wait, there's more. Dr. Christy Funk will be in the house. So we're going to be kicking cancer's bootay that night as well. Samantha Harris from Dancing with the Stars. She's going to be there. 
Tony Okamoto, our friend who was just on the show last week, the author of the phenomenal book, Plant Based on a Budget, Quick and Easy. She's going to be in the house that night as well, as will actress and musician Harley Quinn Smith. Everybody coming together that one night for the exam room live to help make the world a healthier place and have a whole lot of fun along the way. And we would love for you to be there as well. Tickets start at just $15 and the VIP tickets, they will get you an exclusive scrumptious plant-based dinner before the show, plus exclusive giveaways and photo ops, a meet and greet and priority seating once the show begins at eight o'clock. We would love to see you there. Secure your tickets today, pcrm.org slash events, or just click the link right now in the episode notes. And New York City, the home of Chef Rebecca Johnson. We are headed your way very, very soon. We will have more details for you in the immediate future. So just stay tuned for a little bit longer. Dr. Neil Barnard will be my guest on the next episode of The Exam Room Live before we get to L.A. or New York. He's going to be here this Wednesday, and we're going to be talking about those keto and low-carb foods that you see blanketing store shelves. Well, a major new study finds that really those particular foods should come with a warning label for your heart. The hidden dangers of these diet foods are coming to the surface on The Exam Room Live. So join us this Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube or on Facebook, or catch the replay right back here on the podcast on Thursday. And you can always send your questions in ahead of time for Dr. Barnard. Send them to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Chuck Carroll WLC. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Chef Rebecca Johnson for being here, raising our health IQs and teaching us the five C's of cooking. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. 